Hello there. You're listening to 10 Questions, where we discuss the wet plate collodion process and the photographers that create these unique images known as ambrotypes and tintypes. I'm your host, Chad Shryock, wet plate photographer for Pork Pie Photography, based in Fort Collins, Colorado. In each episode, I've asked a modern-day practitioner to sit down with me and talk about how they got involved with this vintage process, share some information on their gear and studio, and provide some valuable insights into their creative process. So whether you're just beginning to dabble your toes in the collodion ethers, or you're a seasoned silver bath expert, hang on and see what develops with 10 Questions. In this episode, we're going to see how a love of Star Wars and the making of a yearly pilgrimage to the Hoosier State sparked an interest in vintage photography that turned into a passion for creating portraits using the wet plate collodion process. I've asked a photographer to speak who I know very well. Said perfectly by Obi-Wan Kenobi, well, of course I know him. He's me. Based in Timnath, Colorado, I'd like to welcome myself Chad Shryock to 10 Questions. I know what you're thinking. Where are the real photographers for this podcast? If you've ever created a podcast, you know the most critical thing to keep an audience engaged is regular release frequency. This is the first podcast I've been involved with, and while I've tried to create a backlog of guests to meet those requirements of regular weekly releases, I've had a couple scheduling issues recently and took some time off for a trip back to Indiana which made it tough to carry out the interviews needed. So instead of putting everyone on hold, I thought I would try to captain the ship this week as we head into the end of the first season break. I also wanted to share questions that sometimes get asked of me when conducting guest interviews. I usually try to cut these side conversations out completely, or at least minimize them in the finished episodes. I figure that most listeners of 10 Questions are here to learn more about my guests and not necessarily me. But this week, you get to hear the whole story about me getting into Collodion and why I decided to start this podcast. I've also asked my wife, Rochelle, to sit in as the interviewer, so the awkwardness of asking myself questions is removed. Rochelle is about as familiar with the Collodion process as one can be without actually performing any of the mechanics of shooting a plate. So staying with the same types of questions my guests get to answer Let's do this. So, Chad, what event stirred your interest in wet plate photography? So, my formal education is in electrical engineering, and I've focused my career primarily in the field of electrical power generation and the control of equipment in different types of power plants. I got into engineering because I was born a tinkerer. I was always curious to know how things worked as a child. I was happy tearing apart my first toys and then anything else that was broke around the house and also learning about computers in the golden age of the late 80s. My attitude is that knowledge is best gained by doing. Now my interest in wet plates started with frequent trips that we would make back to Indiana and looking through the many books that my father had that detailed the Civil War. My father really got into studying the war in great detail and had amassed a pretty substantial library of sources. I was most interested in the photos. 
How did they take these images on the battlefield? And what were some of the processes that they used? I had also had a love of photography from my early days of working on the high school newspaper. No, I wasn't a photographer. I was the computer geek that sat in the other room next to the dark room using the first versions of Aldous PageMaker on some of the original Apple Macintosh computers. I had a good friend that worked in the dark room, and since this was back in the uh, late 80s to early 90s, they were still shooting on film, black and white to be specific. My friend would sometimes show me what was going on back in the dark room, and I was really amazed with the chemical processes of how they would take these rolls of film out of their cameras, run them through different rinses and put them in these canisters mixed up with some chemicals, and eventually they would get film that would come out. And then they would run the film through an enlarger, create these images, and then we would scan those and use them in our newspaper. But when I was first thinking about getting into this style of photography, I really thought I wanted to shoot daguerreotypes. One of the problems that I have is if there is a hard way to do something, I usually start there. I spent some time thinking about the process and getting plates to shoot on, and, and I decided that the costs weren't worth the effort to do a test drive, knowing that I might not be able to figure it out on my own. With DAGs, you've got to have really thin copper plates that are coated with silver, and at one time, I was actually trying to figure out, well, maybe if I just buy my own sheets of copper, I can plate them with silver myself, polish them, and start from there. But honestly, uh, as I started looking into that, I thought there's no way that I want to spend that much time to try and do it. Uh, wet plate, from a cost perspective, was a much better fit. You can shoot with almost any type of camera, and the materials needed from a chemistry standpoint weren't a huge barrier to entry. So tell me, what was your experience in learning the process? Well, I spent months reading about the process. I watched a lot of YouTube videos. I looked through multiple sources of period works like The Silver Sunbeam. Uh, I also ordered the Christopher James book, The Book of Alternative Photographic Processes. I had thought about trying to take a workshop early on, but I really couldn't justify the cost to do so, even with a well-seasoned practitioner like Quinn Jacobson, somewhat local here in Colorado. So I just dived in and started collecting everything that I needed, and then on March 6, 2016, I took my first plate. And so how did that first plate go? <laughs> well, shooting my first plate that very first time uh, was really the first time that I had ever seen the process performed uh, live in front of me. And, it, you know, it was me that was the one that was doing it. Uh, if that hadn't went well, I figured that I probably would have kept, kept going and trying to come up with uh, something uh, to, you know, fix any issues that I ran into. Uh, but instead, I, I got an image, right? N not a good one, uh, but I got one, and I created it myself. I had taken a couple of old cameras that I had sitting in my office up on the bookshelf. There was an old Brownie camera and then some other uh, Kodak uh, camera that was all collapsible with a small bellows on it. And I set them up on a sunny day on the back patio, and I had purchased a, an old uh, 4x5 speed graphic camera that I used. And I, I just set things up. I poured the plate, 
shot the film, you know, shot the plate. Really had no idea on my exposure settings at that point. You know, it was still kind of coming in the, into this blind. Brought it back into the basement, and I had set up kind of a temporary dark room there and poured the developer on, and hey, I, I had an image, but there was a big black hole in it, but there was still something there. And then when I took the plate and dropped it into the fixer, I saw those two cameras appear, and at that point, I was hooked. Uh, there's just something really magical about creating an image from scratch on some material where there, there was no previous image that existed. I had always had a love of chemistry. Whenever I first started into engineering school, I had originally thought about majoring in, in chemical engineering, but decided to switch majors just because of some circumstances at the school. But I always had a love of chemistry. I had taken all of the chemistry classes that I could when I was in high school, and I, and I helped do some other research for some, uh, some businesses where that, that were located in our small town. And just being able to mix all of these different ingredients together and, and pour these liquids onto to this thin metal plate and then get an image on the other end of it uh, was was pretty amazing, and, and I was just excited that I was able to get something on that very first shot. Um, do you have a favorite subject? So most of my work is centered around portraiture. I find that I have done some landscapes, mostly cityscapes. Living here in Fort Collins, we have an old town area. I've loaded up the portable dark room and, and went there a couple of times and taken some images of some of the buildings that are in that area. We have a lot of uh, images on the buildings. I, I can't remember what they call them exactly. Is it uh, ghost billboards or something like that? But it's like old uh, Coca-Cola signs and, you know, just different advertisements that were painted on them uh, decades ago that, you know, are, are starting to fade now. But I've taken a couple of shots like that. I've taken gear up into the uh, Rocky Mountains. I've taken a few shots there. I almost uh, lost my dark room up there. It was so windy whenever I was up there. Uh, but really, most of my work uh, over the last few years has really been focused on portraiture. A couple of reasons, I guess it's for me, it's it's worth it just to be able to share this experience with people. I, I find that there are many people that are around that have never even never heard of this process you know you you tell them hey i i shoot tintypes and they're not even familiar with what that word actually is you know they they have no idea of what a, what a tintype is just because that you know they're they're not familiar with it and and so for me to be able to bring people into my studio and actually show them the entire process you know i talk about the history of the early stages of photography. I've got many vintage examples of daguerreotypes and tintypes here in the studio. I like to show people those uh, just to know that, hey, you know, it's it's not like this is a process that was just invented. It's been around for, you know, 170 years or more, and the images that were taken with it using this process uh, are still in existence. And it, to me, it's amazing to think that these images have the longevity that they've proven that they have, as well as the just the definition that is captured within the plates. You know, I, I've been to 
many different types of museums and, and even, you know, different uh, Civil War battlefields and things like that. And a lot of times whenever you walk into the visitor center, you know, you see these huge blown up images of, you know, whether it's battlefields or people and, you know, they're almost mural sized on the wall and they're still very good quality. And I think a lot of that is just due to the amount of detail that can be captured with this process. And I love to be able to explain that to people, especially folks that, you know, if it's their first time sitting in the chair, that, hey, this is, this is going to be the highest resolution image of you that, that has ever been taken of you. You know, it's, it's not like whenever you zoom in and look at it, you know, under a magnifying glass and you start to see, you know, film grain and pixels and things like that that you might find with digital images you know, you can really get into this with a microscope at that level of detail and still see the image. You know, another thing that I, I really get a lot of enjoyment out of is going into some of the local high schools and sharing this process with them. Most of the high schools in your area, and if you're a wet plate photographer, I would, I would recommend that you do this, is to reach out to the school, find out who the photography teachers are. A lot of times they have uh, dark rooms, you know, if and still in their in their classrooms and so it's really easy just to pack up just a few of your chemicals maybe take a set of strobes with you just so you've got some extra light and then bring your camera and, and I've set up uh, multiple demos over the last few years I go in and really share the process with these kids you know a lot of times that they, they really get focused in on digital imaging and you know being able to do editing of photographs that way and a lot of times Maybe they have hardly any exposure uh, to, you know, even 35 millimeter film, black and white, whatever it might be. I find that it's really neat to be able to share the process with the next generation and hopefully encourage some of them to think about getting into wet plate. I, I have never been one that is feels like what I know is proprietary in any way. I would rather more people know about the process. I don't feel like there's anything special about me or my method of photography. It's more, hey, this this is a process that, that almost died out. And we are kind of the the stewards of it. And it's important that if we have the chance to go out and, and share it with other people, that we take advantage of it. So I, I guess I would I would challenge any of the wet platers that are out there that if you've not contacted a local school or someplace like that to to be able to share the process, uh, give it a try. I, th- I think you'll find it encouraging, and plus you'll get to share the magic with some folks that have, have never seen it before. What is your least favorite subject to shoot? <laughs> uh, you know, at one time I would have said that it would would have been small children and kids, but my wife, Rochelle, who's actually here with me, has watched kids here at our house for the last few years, and and we've taken uh, pictures of them for their parents, you know, giving it to them for, you know, Mother's Day and Father's Day and Christmas and those kind of things. And a a lot like with the process, you know, you never know what you're going to get you really don't know what you're going to get whenever you're trying to take a picture of, of a little one that's kind of wiggly in the chair. And, you know, you're, you're not sure if you've, 
quite get your your focus in the right spot because they you know they they can't sit still and they move just a little bit so at one time I would have said you know I, I just it always makes me nervous to take pictures of little ones but I will say that some of the best images that I've taken have been of the little ones with just the the innocence on their face and the big bright eyes you know they're staring at this big wooden box that's got this glass eye pointed at them and they've got all of this uh, light around them and whenever the strobe pops and if you catch them sitting in just the right spot and they've got their eyes wide open they're unexpectedly you know kind of seeing what's going to happen and the flash pops off it's amazing some of the images that you can capture whenever you get lucky Tell me a little bit about your studio and darkroom. What do they look like? So the studio that I've got here at our home is located in my basement, and I have pretty much cordoned off a, a, a pretty substantial chunk for my studio. My wife and I collect a lot of antiques, so we have lots of old stuff down here to kind of match the decor of some of the cameras and things that I use. I've got a couple of different backdrops that I use primarily. My dark room has went through a couple of different evolutions. Some of the first uh, shots that I took, I had, you know, going at this with the standpoint of, hey, I, you know, I don't want to, like, do anything that's going to be permanent because I don't know if I'm actually going to be able to, you know, be successful with this or not to actually do anything. My first dark room was very much a, a temporary arrangement. Uh, no running water. You know, I had some buckets in there, some pitchers of water. I had gotten the idea that, hey, you know, I think I can make a nice dark room if I just use like some three-quarter inch plastic conduit and then all of these different corner fittings and things and essentially make kind of a, a cube structure and then just coat it with some really thick plastic sheeting. And that worked great for a while. I probably had about a I don't know, about a four by five foot space in there, you know, that was good six to seven feet tall. I, I don't know that I had to crouch down in there, so it was probably at least seven feet tall. Uh, that worked for a while, but it was always difficult with, with the water and, and trying to get things rinsed properly. And so after I had had that for a while, I kind of rearranged some things here in the basement, and I thought, you know, underneath my stairwell is this big open space there's nothing that's there, and I've got a couple of drains. Uh, I had put in a big, like, laundry tub sink on the other side where my workshop's at, and I thought, you know, I bet I can plumb into that drain and just run some, you know, run some running water over to it. I found a, a neighbor that had remodeled their kitchen, and they had all of the, like, countertop material as well as their kitchen sink included. It even had the faucet and a sprayer on it. So I chopped all that stuff up. I had some old cabinets that I used, plumbed everything up. So now I've got, you know, running water. I've got a couple of different lights in there that I use, you know, red uh, safe lights because I, I want to make sure that when I do bring people into there that they're able to see what's going on within that space. And, you know, that dark room now is probably about six foot by I don't know, it's probably 12 or 15 feet long. So I've got a pretty long countertop in there, lots of room for all of the uh, chemicals that I use, plus being able to, you know, bring folks in and, and show them firsthand 
what I've got. Funny story, I, I did find a revolving darkroom door on Craigslist uh, that someone was getting rid of down in Denver. And a, a friend of mine went down in his truck and we brought it back here. And it was too big to actually get down in the basement. You know, there was no room. There was no way I was going to fit that thing down here. It's not like you could just, like, squeeze it and everything. Yeah, I think it was too tall, uh, wouldn't fit down the, down the stairway. Uh, but I noticed that the entire thing, you know, it's made out of plastic. And then it had, like, metal, you know, on the flooring that you step on and, and it, you know, some metal bracing. But it was all plastic that had been riveted to all of these pieces of metal structure and so I thought well I tell you what I can do is I can take out every one of those rivets take it down in pieces and then put it all together again once it gets back down into the basement so I was able to do that so now I've got a nice revolving door which a lot of people you know that unless they've been involved with uh, you know some type of uh, film or you know darkroom stuff way back when They've never seen anything like that before. So I think it's always funny whenever I bring somebody to the studio and I say, okay, I'm going to step in this door and I'll spin it around and then you step in. They have no idea what they're, what they're kind of getting into there with that. <laughs> so can you tell me what kind of uh, equipment you use when you do outdoor photography? Yeah, so working outdoors, that brings its own set of challenges. I have an old... Army Footlocker, you know, I don't know how old this thing is, but it, it looks like it's probably from the 50s. It's a, uh, you know, it's all painted green. It's a kind of a very solid uh, plywood structure. The thing probably weighs, you know, 40 pounds by itself empty. I, using the same type of conduit that I use for my dark room, I, I kind of designed a, a way to build a support structure for the uh, curtain and I've got these angled pieces of conduit that come out of that suitcase. And then they go up to a certain level and then fold back over to the other side. And then a uh, kind of a dark cloth blanket that I can Velcro to the lid of the suitcase or of the, the footlocker. And then drape it down over the top of the pole. So I can stand inside of this thing. You know, it's probably, I don't know, two and a half feet wide or so, maybe three feet uh, so I've got enough room that I can shoot, uh, you know, 5x7s and 8x10s, no problem in there. And I also cut in a little observation door into the front of it that I've got some red acrylic plexiglass uh, so folks can actually look inside, you know, from the outside and kind of see what's going on. I usually have a, a headlamp on while I'm inside there for some extra light, but if I am outside, there's... A lot of times I get just enough natural light coming from the from that window that I can kind of see what's what's going on there. So I've got a couple of uh, uh, trays, like a almost like a sliding tabletop in there that I can use. So I've got enough room to set a you know a full rinse tray, developer tray, and then I've got room down inside of the the case itself for all of my uh, chemicals. And a lot of times I set up on the on the the door part, you know, where the window's at, I've got enough room for my shot glass. It's got my developer and, and uh, some of the other stuff that I use while I'm inside there. So tell me, what kind of photographic gear did you start with versus what you use today? So I bought my first camera, I think, off of Craigslist. I had found an old Grayflex uh, speed graphic 4x5. This is probably a good point to talk about my love of Star Wars. 
and how it ties into photography. I've been a huge Star Wars nerd for decades, and one of the things that I was heavy into at one time was replica props. And the granddaddy of all Star Wars props is the Luke Skywalker lightsaber from A New Hope. And back in the late 90s, I was able to snag the uh, elusive Grayflex 3-cell flash handle that was actually used on a lot of the, the early press cameras. And this is the kind of the metallic cylinder that held the batteries and then had the strobe and the, the dish attached to the top of it. Uh, you know, if you see any old movies that show a bunch of uh, newspaper press photographers running around, you know, this is the type of uh, camera. Well, that, that flash handles what they actually used in, in the early Star Wars movies when the props department was out looking for things to, you know, create all of the, the weaponry in the universe of Star Wars. Uh, one of the things that they pulled out was the Grayflex 3-cell. And so I had always known about the, the Grayflex cameras uh, from that as a more of a Star Wars collector at the time, you know, kind of in the mid to late 90s. I had known that uh, a lot of the camera folks got pretty crotchety whenever you told them that you were looking for those Grayflex 3-cells because they knew exactly what you were going to do with them. You know, you were going to turn this into a lightsaber and you know, they kind of considered that blasphemy at the time that uh, anyone would want to take these historical photographic devices and, and do something with them other than, uh, you know, capture images. So I, I was aware of those cameras from that experience. Uh, so whenever I went looking for my first camera, I thought, you know, uh, it'd be great just to get an old Grayflex camera, an old speed graphic. And that way, you know, if I wanted to create some display, I've got a couple of those handles around now. I've only converted one of them to a lightsaber, but I've got another one that's kind of in display, on display in my office. You know, maybe I could use that use that flash at some point. So I had an old Grayflex. Uh, that was my first camera. I got the film pack adapter for those to where I could, you know, insert uh, 4x5 uh, aluminum or glass plates. And so that's what I started with for, for a while. And and about that same time, I think right after I had taken my first shot, I was digging around on some of the large format camera forums that were around kind of, you know, in that uh, 2015, 2016, I guess 2016 time frame. I had found a guy that had an old Eastman 2D camera, 8x10 for sale. And, you know, the, the photos online looked, looked pretty good of it. It came with a lens. I think it maybe even came with some film holders. And I thought, ah, you know what? I, I'm going to go ahead and get that thing, you know, just in case I decide to, to make that jump to, you know, 5 by 7 or 8 by 10 And I, I had seen how you could take the old film film slides and, and convert those into a film or a, a wet plate holder on a couple of the different forums that I was kind of checking out. So ended up getting that camera. And, and really, I, I probably only used the, the Grayflex for just a short time. Uh, and then I switched over to using that uh that Eastman camera was just a gorgeous, you know, wooden camera, red leather bellows on it. Bellows were not in the best shape, but um, just a, you know, a really neat camera. I'd done some research on it and I found out that, you know, that camera was only made from like 1910 to 1922 or something. So, you know, at the time it was, hey, this camera is, is probably 100 years old, you know. So to me that was that was pretty cool to have 
something old like that available. So I'd be, I mostly use that over the last few years. I picked up a few other cameras here, and I was trying to write down some notes here just to, so I had them. So I've got a um, Empire State uh, Rochester Optical 8x10 camera. I found it in a uh, in an antique store here in Fort Collins. At the time, I thought, you know, I've, I've got a couple of these older Petzval lenses that I had tracked in that were on some uh, projectors, and they were pretty close to the same. Well, they were the same focal length, and from what I could tell, the... Uh, you know, the f-stop was pretty similar on them. So I thought, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this camera and I'm going to try and see if I can make a, a stereo camera out of this thing. So I played around with that a little bit. You know, I take a 4x5, I'm sorry, a 5x7 plate holder, put it in the back, and was able to capture some, some stereo images with that. So it was pretty neat, kind of a, a novelty. I think I've not really played around with that, that too much. I've also, during COVID, I think I've mentioned this on the show a few times, you know, I, I built a 24-inch by 24-inch custom camera. It's, uh, it's got about a one-meter extension on the bellows, made everything by hand. It was kind of a fun process. You know, I had built the bellows and had them done probably three years before I decided to start working on the rest of the camera. I'd kind of gotten started on it and and didn't get very far and just other things going on. And then uh, whenever COVID hit, you know, everybody had lots of uh, free time because they were all stuck at home. So I thought, you know what, I'm just going to gonna try and crank this camera out and get this thing done. So I was able to work on that quite a bit. I've taken a couple of shots on it. I'm still looking for kind of the right lens, but I really don't have the the tanks and everything available at this point to be able to use it, you know, to be able to take a full 24 inch square plate with that thing but but hopefully here in the next year or so I'll, I'll get my act together and get everything I need for that and then uh, here just recently I picked up a, a kind of a mid 80s Cambo SCX 8x10 camera and I've only taken a couple of shots on it so far got that one just because of the the lack of adjustments that I had on the uh, Eastman you know for kind of standard portraiture it wasn't too bad but I was really looking for something that had more in the way of uh, swing and tilt adjustments on the on the front standard lens so I've got that now so hopefully I can play around with that a little bit more. Are there any upgrades to your gear that you have in mind? Probably not after getting that uh, that cambo I think I'm I'm set for a while I, I, I probably you know I, I didn't need to get that one but I think it's just going to give me a lot more flexibility with with being able to shift that focal plane around on my sitters. It's a heavy camera. Uh, I'm probably going to have to invest in a little bit bigger tripod for the thing, but that, that's probably the only thing that I've got now is, is just to find maybe that big lens for the 24-inch uh, the camera and, and maybe a different uh, tripod. What's the oldest piece of equipment in use? I would say that it's probably the Eastman one thing that I have not been super successful with is is finding those great deals on the old Dahlmeyers and Voigtlander lenses, you know, from the 1860s and 1870s. I've just, I've never seen those in the wild. I mean, I know there's folks that are selling those online. To me, it seems like this is not the time to invest in, in lenses just because the, uh, the market seems kind of hot right now. Uh, probably whenever I first started, if I would have uh, 
tried to find one. At that point, I, I may have been able to get a little better deal, but at this point, it's it's a little bit pricey to, to go after those old lenses. The lens that I shoot with now is a uh, Soviet Indostar 37, so it's a 300 millimeter 4.5 f-stop, and I use that on almost all of my uh, portraiture that I take here. If you had the chance to photograph anyone alive today, who would it be? Man, this is a tough question. I, I know I ask this to of everyone, and, and a lot of folks get caught off guard, and, and it's crazy, but I think I've, I've kind of caught myself off guard with this. Um, you know, the, I guess I'd go back to some of the early roots, and, and I'm going to change the question and say if, it, if they were dead or alive. Just from the standpoint of it's, it's that early Civil War type photography that got me into this. And I know there are a lot of different portraits taken, but I would say Abraham Lincoln, if I had the chance to get him in the chair, just such a unique looking person, so many just kind of distinct features that he has on his face. Uh, I think it would be amazing to uh, to have someone like that sitting in the chair and, and take a few more plates of him. Is there an idea for a plate or series you have in mind that you haven't shot yet? You know, I've, I've thought about this a little bit. When I was talking to uh, Conrad Young, he had mentioned that he thought it would be a great idea to go around and capture all of the national parks on wet plate. I, I'm just so intrigued by that idea. I, I would love to be able to, to do something big like that. I've got some small projects that I've kind of had kicking around for a while. I've seen pictures, and I think it's of General Grant, sitting in this studio, and as you look around the studio, there's probably, I don't know, 16 or 20 of these different little like slots in this room, and, and they're all positioned kind of equidistant from him. They're all at a, at a different angle. And, and I think they're for taking, you know, multiple images from every angle of the person all at once. And I've always thought about how could I incorporate something like that into my photography. And one of the things that I've, I've kind of kicked around the idea with is I've, I've seen these devices that they're kind of a rotating device and there's some mirrors in there. Just being able to take you know, multiple images of a subject and then placing them inside of that, that device. And then when you rotate it, it almost looks like the person is, is animated. They're kind of spinning in, in the center of it. And, and I don't recall what the name of it is. I think it's like a praxinoscope or something like that. But uh, something like that I think would, would be really cool to do. I've done a lot of woodworking stuff, so I think I could figure out, you know, the mechanics of that and then really gotten into uh, 3D printing over the last few years as well. So I think there's some opportunities for that kind of stuff. Okay, Chad, can you tell your listeners why you decided to start this podcast? <laughs> so I I, I'm, I guess I'm kind of late to the podcast game. You know, I I knew that there were these kind of shows that were out there, and, and really going back to this idea of just being this huge Star Wars and, and kind of a props nerd, I had heard about this this podcast called The Stuff Dreams Are Made Of. 
and it's hosted by a couple of guys, uh, David Mandel and Ryan Condal. Ryan is actually one of the uh, producers and, and showrunners from the uh, Game of Thrones series, and, and now he's doing uh, House of the Dragon. Um, I think David Mandel was a producer or writer on Veep and Seinfeld, and these guys are just huge prop nerds. And they have a, you know, kind of a periodic show that they've done. And and I started listening to this show and, and kind of late last year. And I thought, you know, this is this is kind of cool that these guys are are really focused on such a niche market of people. I mean, there are so few people <laughs> that are kind of into this that would that would be willing to waste some time listening to two guys talk about movie props you know it's it's everything from the the ruby slippers from the wizard of oz to you know different pulse rifles that may have been in aliens or you know any kind of crazy stuff like that and i got to thinking you know the wet plate community is very similar to that you know there are very few people that are doing this but there's there's not much of an outlet for them to like hear from other people hear about what they're doing. Of course, we all have Facebook and Instagram and those things. We could, we can see those images. But I thought, you know, that's not really answering the kind of questions that I would have. You know, if I had the chance to sit down with somebody and talk to them about wet plate, what are some of the things that, that I would want to know, either about them, about their gear? You know, I know a lot of people get pulled in and, and do interviews for whether it's, you know, newspapers or, you know, any kind of media stuff. But most of the time they're, they're talking to people that really have no idea what wet plate is. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if there was somebody that, that did actually know about wet plate and we could sit down and really have a good conversation about, hey, these are things that, that they're doing that might be a resource for other people that are really interested in the process. So that that's really what kind of kicked off that idea of, hey, why don't I come up with a podcast? And and it, it just kind of hit me, you know, well, hey, why don't we call it 10 questions? You know, it'll be the play on the on the tin type as well as, you know, I've kind of got 10 different areas that I, you know, I usually try and ask folks and we'll just name the show that. So here we are. Who are the photographers that you look up to or that inspire your work? So this is a tough one for me. I mean, there are so many people that are practicing now or, or folks that have been involved with it over the time that, you know, I was really trying to do some research and things. I've had the chance really to meet just a couple of photographers. I've had uh, Shane Balkowicz on the show. You know, Shane does amazing stuff with his Native American portraiture. I, I really enjoy you know, looking at those images and, and thinking about how, you know, he's really trying to maintain the history of, of, of these people that, that are still around today when, you know, when Edward Curtis were, was kind of taking these, these images originally, you know, he thought that these people would, would be gone within, you know, a few decades and, and, and Shane's kind of taken up that mantle. I actually had the chance to meet, um, Giles Clement, um, here a few years back, he was in the area and I happened to just reach out to him and say, Hey man, why don't you, why don't you stop by the studio here and we can hang out and, you know, maybe take a, take a picture. So, so I, you know, I got to take a, uh, an eight by 10 Amber type of, of Giles and, 
and you know he's he's done some fantastic work. I know he's into uh, watchmaking now and stuff, and that's really cool. If I go back and look at some of the historical photographers, of course, you know, we've got the Matthew Brady's and Alexander Gardner and Timothy O'Sullivan, you know, those folks that were really prominent during the Civil War. And, and, and those uh, images that those folks have created are, are really the ones that that really pulled me into the process, that really kind of stirred that interest initially just to even investigate the process and what it was about. You know, some of the folks that are doing some amazing things today, and, and I'm by no means, you know, I'm, I'm leaving out dozens of people here that, that I, I kind of follow their work and kind of check out. But, you know, Alex Timmermans there in Europe is, is doing some just really creative stuff. Paul also uh, down in, you know, New Zealand area, the portraiture that he takes is, is just amazing. Uh, Paul reached out to me a few weeks and, and kind of said, hey, you know you know what, man, I, I really appreciate the show. It's, it's really kind of sparked me to get back into it. And, and for me, that was a, a huge lift just to know that, hey, this, this stupid little show about Collodian, some people are getting some value out of it. So shout out to Paul. And then there's some new folks, you know, that I've just really come across over the last few years. John Haverstick and Bill Howe, which is doing some really fantastic large format photography uh, it just amazes me how creative people are and if I've not mentioned your name I'm still a big fan I probably have a list of 40 or 50 different photographers that I that I hope to be able to talk to you know over the coming months and hopefully learn more about you and what you're doing what advice do you have for newcomers to the craft or even seasoned photographers so my advice would be, if you're having problems, do the research and ask. There are tons of, you know, different communities out there. Find the one that's a good fit for you. There are tons of people out there that are, that are willing to help. You know, I would say use the search bar. You know, don't just ask the same question that hundreds of people have asked before. I would also say... Don't expect everything to go right all the time. It's, it's a very fickle process. And since we're dealing with chemicals and, you know, just different mechanics that you manually have to do to, you know, pour the substance on the plate. And I've always said, you know, there are so many things that can go wrong with this process. Just keep at it, you know, narrow it down. You know, if you've got a problem with your chemistry, you know, maybe remix everything. It's, it's not that big a deal to go through and, and redo stuff. You're just going to save time. If you, if you've got like weird artifacts and things, clean your plate holders, make sure that things are, are properly sealed, you know, whether it's your bellows or your, your plate holders, you know, make sure you don't have any light leaks on anything just staying on top of all of your chemical maintenance is a huge thing. As far as keeping your silver baths clean, you know, stay on top of your filtering. Uh, make sure you're taking your bath out and sunning it every once in a while. Replenish the silver. Uh, one of the biggest things that I've found is I, you know, I almost always try to use fresh developer. I, I don't, uh, if I if I let it sit for too long, it just, it's it really slows it down. I get some really bad images out of that 
I found that it was just easier just to mix up a new batch before every shoot and, and, and go from there. Just, I guess, the, the best piece of advice, and I think I've had a few people on the show say this, is just get out and shoot, you know. Make, make mistakes. Don't expect to be an expert in it overnight. Uh, just keep at it. And, and that's what I've, I've tried to do. You know, I, I wouldn't say that I've shot a lot of plates. In fact, I, I think I just shot my 500th uh, plate here recently. But I think that's, uh, for me, I think that's a good number. You know, I, I'm shooting multiple plates, you know, at least a few times a month. And I'm still having folks that are coming in and sitting for me. And I'm getting to share the process. And that's satisfying the, the need that I've got here with this process is, is really just sharing the process with folks that have never seen it before and, and let them kind of kind of step into that, that magic that's wet plate collodion. Chad, what is the best way for people who want to see your work or get a photo taken to reach you? So the best way to reach me is probably through Instagram, Pork Pie Photography. Uh, that is the name of my, my studio. Um, I've had some folks, you know, when they come in here and they're like, well, what's a pork pie? And, you know, how, how did you come up with that name? I had really gotten into watching uh, Breaking Bad. And if you've seen that show, uh, you know that the uh, chemistry teacher that's in there, whenever he puts on his pork pie hat, he becomes the elusive Heisenberg and is, um, you know, becomes a different person. And that's kind of what I, I try to force myself into whenever I'm in the studio here is I, I try to become somebody that is a photographer. Uh, that's, that's not who I am on a, on a day-to-day basis, but I can put on the hat and I can think, okay, now I'm the photographer and I, and I get the chance to share this process with, with my sitters. I, I also named the business pork pie photography, you know, because, uh, one of the, the phrases from breaking bad that, uh, Walt used to say is that um, uh, respect the chemistry and this is a very chemical process and if you don't respect it uh, you're not going to be successful you're going to have problems so word of advice is to uh, always respect the chemistry uh, so that's my my Instagram I've got uh, also face Facebook with uh, pork pie photography you can look me up on my website at uh, porkpiephotography.com and I think that's about it. So I appreciate uh, everyone, uh, if you've made it this far, I appreciate you hanging out and listening to me kind of ramble on. Uh, it's a little bit different. I'm still on the same side of the mic, but uh, it's kind of different talking about yourself like this. So I do appreciate all of the folks that have uh, sat for me over the last few months. And again, we're going to take just a little bit of a break here over the next a uh, few weeks or so while I kind of regroup, uh, reach out to some more folks and get some more interviews scheduled. But uh, we'll be back. Uh, check out the Instagram site for 10 questions. That is at 10 questions. And hopefully we will have some, maybe some shorter features there over the coming weeks. I'd like to do some surveys and have some folks send in some of their, you know, maybe the first plate that they've made or what they're working on now. So Give us a follow there and check it out, and thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode and maybe even picked up some insights that will help you along in your own wet play journey. 
I'd love to hear from you on who you'd like to have on in a future episode. So send me a message and follow our Instagram account at 10questions with any feedback. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast provider. Thanks for listening to me, Chad Shryock, and my expert guests. And I look forward to you joining me again in the coming weeks for a new episode of 10 Questions. Thank you.